Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's Angel in the Forest. Oh, excuse me. And we are on page 245, and the chapter heading is The Declaration of Mental Independence. This one might be too long for me to read in one go. Let me check. Um, yeah, I think I'll split it up into two sections. It's not that long, but it's also not that short. It's one of those weird in-between chapters. <clears throat> New Harmony continued a babel-like confusion, democracy, communism, dictatorship, combination of all. If you could tell from one day to the next which was which circumstance they were living under. More and more, the present became unbearable, a nightmarish myth. A community of sleepwalkers, for by omitting all which did not come within the domain of reason, it seemed that they had omitted reason itself, and lived in a world in which the operations of law were either totally suspended or very fickle. More and more people began to exhibit openly what they had concealed, for the most part, before a preference for the soul as it had existed outside community, a looking back toward Colcho's golden fleece, in fact the past, which would have been their future, too, had it not happened that they were sidetracked by false promises and false gods. They stood on the street corners in little knots, talking about the wonderful jobs they had enjoyed and the great opportunities they had abandoned, for the mere chasing of a will-o'-the-wisp, the science of society. They sat all day at the tavern, talking about the large cabbages they had grown at Knoxville, which was no utopia, and the wagon loads of onions they had sold at St. Louis, which was a jumping-off place, and the five hundred pumpkins they had had for the picking near Springfield, and the freedom at Chicago, where no one had ever tried to get rid of life's incongruities. It seemed that many who had come to New Harmony with only the bags upon their backs had slept in mahogany bedsteads in Pittsburgh and elsewhere, elsewhere, though there had been no such thing as absolute right or absolute justice. It was wonderful how many had been rich who were now poor. The discussion of New Harmony's failure was now almost the only great activity. Men took a perverse pleasure in it. What a fool imagined that he could, he could establish harmony where God had not, or even an angel had fallen in the hot field. Could anyone in the world direct the forces of the world? The only possible harmony would be the acceptance of the world as it was, with all its makeshift arrangements, its hawks eating swallows, good as an aspect of evil, evil as an aspect of good, this side millennium. If thousands perished as sea, for example, that was lamentable, but had a direct bearing on the prosperity of conditions elsewhere, to say nothing of the happiness of fishes in the deep. Or if the whale swallowed Jonah, that fact might account for the instability of markets. Possible to change the latter unless one could progress backward to the former, to prevent what was, in the first place, unpreventable. There were few in New Harmony who could accept this world as nothing but a pure unity of relations. Few who did not believe themselves to be the most important non-relations. There was a vast suspicion that worldwide separation and division were basic to existence, and that the economic war 
far from resulting from human institutions, had come down as a result of a war between the angels of heaven long, long before the discovery of America. Human reason, whatever efforts it had made, had always left something exterior to itself, an element beyond reason, and whose depths could not be plumbed by thought. Thus did the bad live in happiness and leave the world unpunished for their crimes. This was Utopia, a place merely of no birth, no age, no sickness, and no death. Only Robert Owen maintained that earlier vision which had led him to the wilderness. In his speech on May 9, 1826, he declared that his expectations had been realized and surpassed. Within one year, the mass of confusion and many cases of bad and irregular habits had been formed into a community of mutual cooperation and equality. At McClurea, the members had built temporary but comfortable shelters, and the young people were weaving more cloth than would be necessary to clothe them. Faiba Pavelli had likewise prospered, with well-fenced gardens and excellent fields. Great oaks grew from little acorns. No system of equal magnitude involving such extensive changes in the conduct of human affairs had ever made progress, progress in any degree approaching to this in so short a time. Hereafter, no one who came and visited Macluria or Feiba Pavelli would doubt the practicability of the scheme. The battle was not lost. New Harmony would go on to ascertain whether a large heterogeneous mass of persons collected by chance could be amalgamated into one community, assured that deliverance from poverty, ignorance, and the oppression of riches was at hand. So though the spirit of New Harmony was, in the minds of most people, dead, it was beautifully alive in the mind of Robert Owen. Even as this community disintegrated, he continued to formulate his plans. On July 4th, speaking from Father Rapp's old pulpit where he was in the peak-shaped hat had art, where he in the peak-shaped hat had urged mental dependence, Robert Owen presented, for the benefit of all mankind, his Declaration of Mental Independence, a document which he considered of more importance than that composed by the original Founding Fathers of the United States. I now declare to you and to the world, Robert Owen said, that man up to this hour has been in all parts of the earth a slave to a trinity of the most monstrous evils that could be combined to inflict mental and physical evil upon the whole race. I refer to private or individual property, absurd and irrational systems of religion, and marriage founded upon individual property, combined with some of these irrational systems of religion. From the hour of this statement, he expected a great change in the affairs of nations. The principles of a new harmony or freedom from the unholy trinity of property, religion, and marriage would spread from community to community, state to state, continent to continent, until the system and these principles should overshadow the whole earth, shedding fragrance, intelligence, and happiness upon all the sons of men. The science of society Robert Owen saw could be contained within no small laboratory as an isolated phenomenon, could ever be preserved like dwarfed oaks under a glass jar, must be everywhere or nowhere. From present appearances, he concluded, in twelve months we will be able to contend against the world. From the date of the Declaration of Mental Independence, a new calendar was adopted, the Gazette carrying under its dateline the statement, first year AMI, for surely this was the infancy of the science of society. Unfortunately, the word ought is a different thing from the word is. People of fifty summers could hardly reduce themselves to one or imagine themselves as bald sucklings. <clears throat> a rational com communism, they felt, was heartless, ignoring the details which it could not comprehend. In this vast sea of rational human nature, every man was as a drowned sailor, and the differences between one man and another were too quickly dismissed. As fishes care not whether they feast on mechanics or educators, so rationalism cared not which was Matthew, which was Mark, which was Luke, and which was John. 
Paul Brown, who has no other importance in mortal history, would rather have witnessed the death rattle of the universe than carry his own shirts to the laundry. He took great delight in reporting New Harmony's failures and imperfection. From the first time I set my foot within this little town of one half-mile square, I think there is not one within the range of my observations during my traveling in other parts of the United States, where the same number of persons living together within such a compass for so many months, and daily and hourly passing and repassing each other, have been so perfectly strangers, and void of all personal intimacy with each other's feelings, views, situations, and very generally names. Everything was at sixes and sevens. The mechanics, discouraged by the, in the intricacies of the permanent constitution, had created instead, Paul Brown reported a trinity of dictators, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. While people were wrangling with one another, a large patch of cabbages went to ruin from neglect. There were holes in the fences made by brutes and boys. These openings had grown ever wider to admit pigs, cows, and horses, who ranged to pleasure through once fruitful fields. There was a congregation of crows in every cornfield. Potatoes rotted. It was a worm's paradise. There was a pilfering spirit abroad, so that Paul Brown was afraid to step out of his boots for fear they would not be there when he returned. Sorrow seemed to inhabit the whole landscape. Two dames of houses of house number four, where abide the pastorals and shepherds, had a battle with their fists last evening. There were no hierarchies, no degrees, no recognition of the fact that a hair's breadth may change the entire destiny of man. When Paul Brown went to get his laundry at the community wash house, and he saw no reason why it could not have been delivered to him, he came away with such shirts as he had never dreamed of. It seemed to Paul Brown that this people had worshipped the Moloch of abstraction, a shirt which fits no one. There were none of the ordinary comforts to make life endurable. Washwomen, instead of attending to their business, were far too busy dancing a rectangular pattern. Tongues were always wagging. Not only did Paul Brown predict New Harmony's ruin, before that year was out, before ever the cherry trees should blossom again, he would have been genuinely disappointed if, by some trick of fate, communism should supersede capitalism, a system in which he was at least sure of the shirt on his back. The Gazette, like Robert Owen, was not ready to admit the failure of the great scheme to enlighten the world, could not admit a reversion to chaos in doctrine and chaos in practice. It offered a mild rebuke to those who, from a neglect of principles, indulged in an unhappy state of mind. Surely there was no invisible canker at the heart of this Golden Rose community. Surely great improvements had been made over the mistaken orders of the past. Already in a few short months, drunkenness had become a thing unknown. A drunk was now almost a rarity. At the beginning, there had been some few persons intemperate, thievish, aristocratic, violent, ill-advised. These characters had departed and had perhaps taken away some good from their experience, some few seeds to scatter elsewhere. The Gazette admitted, however, that a few families, though they still remained in New Harmony, were engaged in a system of trading, speculation, and betting on horses, largely apocalyptic. Education of public property should show the, would show the meaninglessness, however, of such diversions away from the real goal. The Declaration of Mental Independence had laid the foundations of the new science of society on a rock immovable through future ages. Progress in the right direction was inevitable. New Harmony, like the waning Indian, was facing, however, its darkest hour. In spite of the Gazette editorial policy, many people were leaving, many had already left. Among these, the Pears family, bag and baggage, scrip and scrippage. Safely arrived in Pittsburgh, which was, after all, not irretrievable, Mr. Pears wrote a letter to the Gazette and the press of the nation, while Mrs. Pears, much improved, looked over her shoulder, and poor Maria coughed her heart out, as usual, inevitably. 
Mr. Pierce's purpose was to warn others who might be so foolhardy as to expect a great change in human nature and society. Let's see. Okay, so read these two pages and we're done. Decay and retrogression. Retrogression, he had found at New Harmony, were more important factors in development and progress. He realized, as a result of his experience at New Harmony, that the march from imperfection to perfection was not to be achieved in a single day, nor could man, if once past his zenith, ever reach it again. Rationalism was a mythology, excuse me, like any other, though without such bodies as Job and Jehovah, for it had no character but the hom homogeneity of dew, no principles but those which were lost in cloud and mist. New Harmony, Mr. Pierce believed, was not a place for freedom-loving men or men who would enjoy the material goods of life and past existences. Only paupers should have been invited there. Where were the square palaces built which were to supersede all other buildings? Had one even been begun at this late date in history? Where were the gardens, conveniences, improvements, great machines, which were to provide for all those willing to work and unable to find a remuneration? I want to say remuneration. For their labors, but I think it's spelled remuneration. Remuneration. Oh, I don't know if it's spelled right. Who had been eyewitness to one promise kept in old New Harmony? Many a time and oft have I seen him, Robert Owen, and others ride over to pitch upon the spot on which the palaces were to be built. School children paraded, as did most of the men and boys, armed with hoes and axes and shovels, prepared for war with the forest. The provision wagons had all arrived in safety at the happy spot. Some trees fell beneath the strokes of the woodman, many a sapling felt its roots <clears throat> its roots assailed by the hoe, and it was said that fifteen acres were cleared that day. The train returned in triumph, and some wag who was with them is said to have made the following couplets on this exploit. Yea, we shall see the happy day. It's even beginning now. One tree this day was cut away, where harmony shall grow. Where are the gardens? In Athens, for aught I know, and harmony there are when there was none. Generally, the first comers, the Owenites, attempted to make gardens, but these, and what the Germans left, were demolished as if by magic, although the fences were not very good. But unluckily, the hogs, escaping from their confinement after destroying the sweet potatoes, destroyed the gardens also, for it could not be worthwhile to repair old fences when we were promised new ones. So in 1825, we bought our vegetables. The Continental Woolen Establishment of Dye Houses and Steam Grist Mill erected by the Germans still existed when I left New Harmony. So did the Cut-Off Mill and Tan Yard. Improvement. What moral evils are destroyed? New Harmony, even in the summer of that first year, AMI, was the laughingstock of the American nation, alas. There were many sermons, many satires. There was hardly a day which did not see some new objection rise to New Harmony. Both of the fundamentalist preachers who camped at its gates, shouting hellfire and by drunks in distant taverns, singing nursery rhymes. Basilbub had fallen. Robert Owen's community, like Humpty Dumpty, had fallen. All the king's horses and all the king's men could never put it back together again. The bestseller in the American nation first that first year, AMI, was a little book entitled The Three Wise Men of Gotham. It was embellished with a picture of the feeble trinity who put out to sea in a bowl with the inscription, If the bowl had been stronger, my tail had been longer. This book, distorting the Owenite community in the concave and convex mirrors of ridicule, was the rage of Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Knoxville, and many a hog wallow, many a cave, many a deep shelter, many a hollow tree. It was censored nowhere. Judges passed it on to cutthroats, and cutthroats passed it on to lawyers. 
Every copy was worn to tatters. Every page was interlined with comments. There were chapters relating the autobiography of a man-made machine, a Frankenstein monster, assembled part by part with no part missing but his, his mind. Chapters criticizing the Owenite attitude toward education was a public property, to be poured into the head of a fool through a funnel, though his head was a sieve and he was already happy. Chapters criticizing Owenite idealism, Owenite depravity, Owenite frivolity, and the Owenite book of life, a series of blank pages. Not a few pages were devoted to the ex exhumation of Robert Owen's gruesome past, every bone. Robert Owen, it seemed, had shown cupidity in his relation with the child workers at Newland Ark. Was the greatest of cotton lords who had climbed up to the empty top of the pyramid, which he now occupied. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Where Father Rabbit preached the world's downfall, Robert Owen read the three wise men of Gotham to the assembled Owenites one Sunday morning in August, when not a breath of wind disturbed the air. There could be nothing hidden but the members, he urged, should not heed in the slightest that the world has said or may say relative to our discussions here. All that was necessary to do was to destroy the suspicious spirit of sectarianism loose among themselves. If they should meet as a body in the cruciform church three times a week during the coming autumn and winter, they would still come to understand the principles of human solidarity. All right, we're going to stop there for today. Unless I think my dog is running about and the cats are attacking it. So, thank you for listening. Bye.